Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, psychotherapy, and the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of human suffering and the mysterious, mystical world of psychedelic drugs. I'm your co-host, Nathan Gates. And I'm your co-host, Brian Pilecki. We're two therapists and longtime psychedelic advocates who love to discuss all aspects of this fast-evolving field. Thanks for keeping it current with us. And thanks for keeping it weird as we dive into today's episode. Today we have something a little different on tap. Brian and I will be talking today, and actually Brian is going to interview myself about my farm in West Central Illinois. So we won't actually talk about psychedelics much at all. Instead, we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming, and how I believe we can make a more humane world and a better life for many people through how we change the way in which we manage our land and which we relate to our food supply. So that's what's going on today, and I hope you enjoy this kind of more personal inside look at something else that I'm very interested in. to another episode of Altered States of Context. I'm your host, Brian Pilecki, and I'm joined here by uh, my co-host, Nathan Gates. Hey, Nate, how's it going? Good, great, nice morning here in Illinois. We're recording this in the summer. Um, I don't know when this will be published, but right now uh, out in Portland, we're in a bit of a heat wave. So uh, in the full midst of, of the summer heat uh, and Today we're going to be talking about some things that might be a little different than our our normal trajectory, uh, which might include things like the weather and the earth and the planet. Uh, But first, we're going to start by jumping into uh, talking about Nate's farm. So some of our audience might already know that, Nate, you are, uh, besides a podcaster and a psychotherapist, that you, uh, you know, a husband, a father, among other things, but you're also a farmer. Uh, so maybe we could start out by just hearing a little bit about um, your farm and how you got into this. How, how long have you been doing this for? Sure. Yeah, this is something that has been, you know, a huge, uh, huge part of my life for over a decade now um we moved so the farm we live on we live on a uh, farm in west central illinois um, and we've lived here for 11 years 11 years we moved from colorado where where my wife and i were living uh, with our two at the time really young kids now they're giant um and taking college classes at the community college which that happened yesterday so that's <laughs> um, but uh we moved here 11 years ago almost and it's the farm is my wife's well late grandmother's um and she had she didn't live here you know she had um tenants here and that they, they kind of had been here for a long time and it, it, it didn't work out they pretty much wrecked the house i think um and they you know they offered like hey you know if you ever want to come back here and move this you know you can come stay at the farm um and you know we had young kids and kind of thought well you know we have two sets of grandparents that live in illinois and we don't really know anyone there anymore except for a few people a couple really good friends in the area but just decided to take the leap um and 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 moved back here uh, so we moved back here and I started a private practice in a town that I wasn't from and didn't know anybody um and it all you know worked out pretty well and part of that was 
you know, we wanted to not idealize farming and idealize living close to the land, but actually, you know, do that and see what it, see what that was. And so for the first few years, it was more like where we were adapting, you know, and I was like, we had little kids and we were just trying to figure out how the heck to be here. We're way, way out in the country. I mean, we live a 30 minute drive from the town where I work, um, which is, which is a pretty small town uh, itself um, and pretty far from any bigger city. And just, it's an extremely rural place. And so adapting, I grew up rural, but it had been a long time. Um, and there was a lot, there's a, a lot to learn. Um, and so we spent the first five years just kind of raising our family and trying, you know, this project or that project, you know, uh, you know, growing a garden, um, just, uh, doing, you know, firewood, um, kind of just tinkering around the edges and, and just learning how to be here. Um, but then, you know, about five years ago, a little over now, we, um, decided to go for it and try actual farming. Uh, we got, we bought small, we bought four Dexter cattle and, um, and then bought a couple more and, you know, um, bred them of course, and bought a few more. And now we have about 30. Um, and that's the, that's the, the main, um, thrust of what we're doing is, you're going to grow the, the cattle herd into our pasture. And um, we've been selling quarters and halves. So a quarter of beef, half of beef for, you know, four years now. Um, and and building up that business, building our herd, um, learning how like the farmers need all new fences. So we've had to build, you know, literal miles of fences. I think this summer we are about done with that. Um water infrastructure just a ton of infrastructure stuff because the farm was kind of falling over you know it was pretty dilapidated um hadn't had much maintenance done to it there's a bunch of um row crop acres on the field um uh, we don't farm that um you know the family the you know the, the trust um rinse that out um we switched that five or six years ago because before that it was done by a kind of a traditional row crop um corn and beans conventional producer and we found uh, a, a brother some a couple brothers who are Mennonites who farm it organically so they still do they do a wheat corn and beans rotation but they do that organically and use cover crops and things like that so it feels like a step in the right direction it's maybe not ultimately what we want the farm to look like in the long run but it's a step in that direction and so while we've been doing this a lot of this has just been getting our feet under us learning how this works um, and, and, you know, building kind of a, a longer term vision for what we uh, want it to look like. Um, so that's sort of the, the big picture of how we got here. And then um, and, and sort of what we're up to um, within that, there's a great deal of of detail, however much we want to go into about, you know, kind of why we, we chose made the choices that we made, what we're kind of hoping to build out in the long run, um, how we think that this is beneficial to us, to the place and uh, to the community um, and ultimately to, to, you know, to the environment and to um, the ecological health of um, our place locally and even globally. Um, so there's, there's a lot that goes into that, um, but that's kind of the, I guess, the introduction. Yeah, I'd love to get into some of that. I mean, clearly you have a, a passion for this and uh, it, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to hear about like what, what excites you about it? Like what, what really gets your blood flowing when you, when you, um, have to make these decisions or thinking about how invested to become in farming in your life? Well, it's funny. It's not the same as it used to be. At least it's not identical to what it used to be. I mean, there's, there's still things that are similar because, you know, I've been interested for, I guess we have to go back a really long way, um, Growing up, my parents are kind of, I don't know, they weren't full on hippies, but, you know, hippie adjacent, kind of back to the landers. We, you know, they, we grew up in a little uh, clearing in the woods down in Southern Illinois. And, you know, my dad had a huge garden and they were both, my mom and dad, really, my parents had a garden. It wasn't just my dad's. He, my dad has abundant energy. So he's like the, the worker, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, 
they uh you know and my mom does all this amazing fiber arts stuff and um and she fed us you know growing up you know she's she was at home most you know until I went to high school and and she fed us all organic food you know grew up with like that was the thing it was it was all organic food big big orders from the co-op she paid a lot of attention to food and the quality of food and the type of food and healthy food um and it was a big part of you know how she raised us like there was a really important thing you know in our family was was eating that really good food which of course as a kid and going to public school I was kind of like had very mixed feelings at the time because you know I'd get up and get and open my um lunch and there'd be like a peanut butter sandwich with you know um natural peanut butter and uh on you know brown whole wheat bread and, and the dude next to me had a bag of chips and Twinkie and it's kind of like man that that's what I want uh, right <laughs> <laughs> and a can of pop or whatever and I was you know I got the quarter uh carton of milk <laughs> um so i don't know at the time i think i was a little bit like mm, i don't know about all this but it got in there you know it got in there um because i've been just always you know, had an interest in food and that was mm-hmm. you know that was so you know, i'm 45 so that was like you know 80s 90s was when that was happening um and um you know went to college, did a, did a whole different thing. But soon afterwards was really, I remember we, my wife and I moved out to Colorado and in Fort Collins is where we lived. This would have been early two thousands and they had a really cool natural food co-op. So I kind of dove back into being, you know, like remembering like all the ways that my mom fed us um, and just being really excited and caring about that a lot and, and caring about the implications of that. And at the time, my wife, um, we, just got married and she was vegetarian. So I became vegetarian. And the reason that we were vegetarian was because of basically feedlot agriculture, you know, like the industrialized model of animal production, you know, was uh, we found completely repugnant and still find completely repugnant Um, like uh, farrowing crates, you know, for uh, sows and, you know, hog hog farming. It just, um, it's, yeah, repugnant is is the word, and and very industrial. It's treating animals like machines, and so um, and learning. You know, we were uh, learning a lot about the uh, the ecological impacts of that too, not just the ethical ones, but the ecological problems of uh, manure management and you know feeding all of these commodity grains, um, and just was like this is a nightmare, and so we were we were both vegetarian for about 10 years so that was a big uh piece um and then i went in 2003 to the sustainable living fair in fort collins colorado it's an annual event i think they still do it last time i went was like a decade ago we had moved back but we were out there and it's a cool event it's gotten really big but it's you know a sustainable living fair but the time well, the main headliner that year was Woody Harrelson. So I met Woody, um, uh, who is kind of an icon. Um, I, always, I always love Woody Harrelson. Um, but the, the one of the main speakers was a guy named Wes Jackson. And Wes Jackson runs the Land Institute out in uh, Kansas. And his big project, he's kind of, I think he's semi-retired now. He, um, but, you know, his big project was to is to at the land it's to breed um a perennial um grain mm. so grains all grains that we eat rice corn um, wheat oats barley you name it all um grains are annual crops and you know what that means is they die every year and you replant the following year and grain crops tend to go with you know high tillage type agriculture um, a lot of weed control, you know, you have to do a lot of weed management with, um, spraying and, um, you know, there's a, it, it's a, a very, it's the kind of agriculture that's completely colonized the Midwest. Um, and, uh, so his whole idea, he called it natural systems agriculture as poor is like to plant a perennial polyculture that can be productive. 
a perennial polyculture that can be productive, meaning uh, you have perennial grains like wheat, for instance, that comes back every year. You don't have to replant it. You know, you don't have to till. You don't you don't do all that. It just comes back every year. And if you mix that with uh, which they've developed, they have Kernza and they actually they can get a yield from it. It's still really expensive, but they're making real product progress. Kernza is a, a wheat plant that, that does that. It, it's perennial. Um, the, I think the yields, like I said, are, are pretty low, but they're making progress. Um, and if if you're mimicking nature, nature exists in a perennial uh, um, right. polyculture. It's right. not one species. It's never a monoculture. It's always a lot of species. Uh, and you have annuals mixed in there, but the, the basis of it, on the, on the prairie especially, the basis of it is perennial plants that put their roots 15 feet down into the earth, you know, mm -hmm. and what that does is it locks the soil in place, prevents erosion. It can't erode. Now, this is where, you know, I think it gets really interesting is the roots um, both store and remove carbon dioxide because mm -hmm. um, plants consume carbon dioxide. Um, and then, uh, you know, without getting too into too much detail, it extrudes carbon dioxide from its roots. Now that and that like that carbon, you know, and they're and, and the all the stuff that is extruding into the earth feeds bacteria. It feeds soil life. You know, so you end up with 15 feet down these roots in a healthy prairie are, you know, there's a huge ecosystem under the ground that's based right. on the water, the carbon, like all the stuff from the plants are bringing into the soil um and it's like a pump that pumps carbon dioxide it's eating that and putting it right into the soil now there's a lot that's still not understand about that like how much can the soil hold does it saturate um does the carbon actually like mineralize into a hard form that stays there semi-permanently or will it sort of cycle its way back in pretty quickly uh, it seems clear that it will sequester carbon the, the question is like how much so there, there's a lot that, that isn't fully understood about that yet, but the but grasslands hold a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide and can hold a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide. And a lot of times when people think, and trees are great, I mean, I love trees, this is not, not making like an anti-tree point, but people often think about carbon dioxide and, you know, if you're sequestering it, you want trees and really you want grassland because grassland, if like really, really stores and, and pumps carbon into the ground. It's a it's a powerhouse. Um, in fact, the from a uh, I guess from just a carbon perspective, from a lot of perspectives, actually, you know, uh, savanna is really what you want, which is grasslands dotted with, you know, hardwood trees all over. It's really they're beautiful, um, but they're also just an incredibly prolific ecosystem. And so I'm learning all that back in 2003. From Wes Jackson, he's talking about this and he's talking about an agriculture that's not based on annual, that solves the problem of tillage um, because that's a huge problem. Every time you till, you're breaking down the soil, you're ruining the soil biology. Um, so you have this ecosystem that is the soil that every time you run and rip up and crush, you know, you're destroying the integrity of the ecosystem there. Like it can't, you know, you can't have a living ecosystem when, you know, a couple, two, three, four, depending on how much you do it times a year, you go through and and rip it up, so it's uh, that's tremendously problematic um, from that point of view. And um, so, if you don't till and you don't douse with chemicals, because that's the problem right now, is like you see a lot of no kill, no till agriculture taking off, which is great. But you're still in order to be able to get the crop in, you have to come through with a bunch of Roundup or uh, something else and kill everything so that you can put the soil in. So you're still, it's kind of trading one ecological problem for another. Um, but when you have a perennial polyculture or you, you're you not having to disturb it all the time. And this idea captivated me and I just thought it was like really amazing and beautiful. Um, and then um, just was really interested in that. I think that was about when the time started to, I was like, wow, Emily's family has this farm. And it was just like a seed that kind of, began to germinate and then in 2009 i read you know as, as as cliche as it might be i read michael pollan's um the omnivore's dilemma mm -hmm. which sparked a lot of people uh, on this you know thinking more deeply about food and like i said i'd already been thinking a lot about food and agriculture up to that but that was sort of the spark that for me it was like man that is 
um, there's no reason we can't do be a part of something like this. And um, I think that was when I read that book, had a lot of conversations. And then Emily and I, and that was, you know, Quinn was born in 2008. Miles was born in 2010. I was finishing up graduate school around that same time. But Emily and I kind of decided like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go back, um, which we did, you know, in 2012 with this sort of vision of kind of like making this farm into a productive, healthy ecosystem mm-hmm. that was also you know profitable and supported us um and so that was um the vision and i feel like we're making a little bit of progress it was really slow for a while but i think it, it's picking up because like i said for the first five years it was really we were just figuring out how to be here you know mm-hmm. where they, we really didn't do anything other than um you know since i started my practice and you know we raised our kids and um just figured out how how in the world to be in this place um and anymore going back to your original question um you know so a lot a lot of it was this like higher level idea of putting carbon in the ground which i still you know i I mean i still love that idea um and um you know that prevention of erosion prevention of erosion ecosystem services as people like to call it stuff like that but anymore i think the thing that really motivates me is less that high level stuff and more you know the taking good care of animals sort of the aesthetic appreciation of how beautiful it is to see you know cattle on really healthy grassland um to see uh i put this post on twitter like a few days ago and it's really fun when you put something up there that you feel good about and it 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 got a lot you know a whole lot of attention because um people people identified with it it was just the um swallows we had i was sitting outside and there was like probably 100 swallows in our backyard just flying around just zooming and it's something that we didn't see you know 5 years ago but the farm has become organic and we have seen just in the last five years, just all these signs of really abundant life that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we more insect life, the bees, we have bees, we have four, three beehives and the bees are really healthy. Like, you know, you hear about uh, colony collapse problems and things like that. And, you know, not that we just have the opposite problem every year. Our, our 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 hives are casting off swarms because there's too many bees uh in each of the hives um they're just really healthy and making you know tons of honey and tons of other bees and uh i went out for the first time um like two months ago and uh found dung beetles there were dung beetles going through all, all of our, our cattle manure which that was new i mean i was waiting for it because usually you won't see dung beetles um, around here very much because um, cattle um, are fed pass through uh, medication for fly control so they eat this medicated feed and then they essentially sweat or exude out this poison that, that kills flies and 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 then their and, and then their manure flies can't reproduce in their manure which is how they often reproduce so these pass-throughs um, protect the cattle um, but they also kill dung beetles so and we don't use those so we went to these methods that didn't use a lot of those things but then we had an explosion the last few years of flies it's been terrible and the last two years now we've seen okay there's dung beetles there's uh we have purple martins in our purple martin house we've got all these swallows and you're seeing these sort of natural predators for the flies come in and and so the you know this life is more abundant and so that's really more how i think about it now like the things I said at the beginning are still applicable and I still think of those things, but they're they're not at the front of my mind. The front of my mind is just creating a robust, vibrant, beautiful um, living system that is prolific. Um, That's how I think about it now. And that's what kind of gets me excited about the project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does really feel exciting to, uh, to, to be, to be in contact with that kind of abundance, to be in contact with that sort of, uh, you know, uh, experiences that are, um, 
you know, related to sustainability and, and the way that, you know, all of these different aspects of our ecosystem kind of work together. Uh, I guess maybe the, the word that comes to mind is kind of like uh, interconnected, interconnectedness, right? That we're all, that all these things are kind of the, you know, the flies bring the predators and, 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 and I, I just, you know, I am sort of imagining like what the impact of that is on your psyche or your family psyche to, to be in that much direct contact with a sort of natural, thriving, abundant ecosystem. Yeah, that's a um, that's a good question. It's um, there's and the, the multi-layered, of course. Um, you know, it's interesting because it's like this interconnected thing, but it's also it is, and you and you see these this balance of you know in nature of competition and cooperation. So you know the the the, the flies are being you know consumed, eaten by the birds. Um, you know, and then the birds, of course, have predators, and and then there's these other places where in a managed ecosystem, which is what this is, it's a human managed ecosystem. So you know, I'm or my family, all of us, we're managing it. So it's not it's not this like totally at all free, you know, Hey, let nature go do what it is. It's a struggle in a way, like I'm pretty heavy handed and sometimes very heavy handed in how I manage it. Um, but trying to <clears throat> balance that heavy handedness with allowing, um, you know, rather than dousing everything with chemicals, rather than allowing like, Hey, well, what's, what, what will, if we step back, you know, what, what happens, what will nature do? How will, how will, you know, what can come up to create some balance here? And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. Maybe I need to do another heavy handed thing. And maybe that creates more problems than it solves. That's happens. So it, it it's, it's constant problem solving, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, you know, the constant problem solving, um, which is pretty fun, but also can be maddening. Um, so it's a ton of tinkering. It's a ton of problem solving. Um, and as far as how it, you know, kind of affects us, I mean, that's, that's mixed on the one hand. So obviously lovely and idyllic and we have these moments that are just like wow this is what a life this is um and when we can step back and appreciate that that's really a good place to be but when you are constantly solving problems and trying to balance things at times it can also be just like super stressful mm -hmm. <laughs> um like you like there is a lot of complex things going on and i'm trying to you know we're we're trying to figure out like okay well when's our ideal breeding season when are we trying to have calves and um oh we need to keep the bull separate from the herd here we you know so we end up with managing two or three herds instead of having just one herd and so then okay well we got to make sure they all have water so i think just like a lot of logistical yeah. management of things that we're building from the ground up i mean we don't know how to do any of this i mean i yeah after six years i kind of know a bit and i i finally know a bit and i know what i don't know and i know you know sort of the framework that i'm shooting for uh, so I've learned a lot, but there's still a lot I don't like most things. I, you know, I feel like I don't know half of what I need to. But um, so there is and I'm trying to manage, of course, with, you know, like our kids do like, you know, they want they go play soccer and do, you know, do all these activities, which is great um, and important and takes time. And I'm, you know, working full time in town, um, which takes my time and attention away and um and everything's expensive <laughs> mm -hmm. i know that's the refrain uh for everybody now with inflation and whatnot but like i think even before inflation with with farming everything's expensive you know you need a new gate it's like oh there's 130 bucks just right there like just like it's all the time there's it's just um this and that so um balancing all those things creates and that stress definitely pulls me uh, out of um that sort of connection with the you know uh, pastoral nature of it uh -huh. um so it can it you know it definitely like it feels like a grind it can be very hard long days like dealing with problems i've had some of the craziest problems to deal with um i'm not telling this like I, i'm laughing at this i'm telling I, like i'm not complaining or woe is me or anything like this it's it's part of the life but it can, there's times it can be ridiculous. Like one, this was two years ago. Uh, I have a, a automatic cattle water that um, it, it plugs in um, and there's a little heating element. So there's a well 
the, a heat well that, that goes down and joins um, with the water pipe. It comes up about a four foot heat well into um, into this water that is insulated. And also there's a heating element there so that in the middle of the winter, the water doesn't freeze. The, cow, the cows can drink year round, water doesn't freeze. And um, one year in January is one of these um, polar vortexes. And so it was sub-zero and um, the cattle unplugged it. They, they, which I had it cattle really hard on things and they, they rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and it pulled the wire out and unplugged it. And I went in the next morning and the whole thing was a block of ice. It was just ice. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Like, and this is their water. <laughs> it's not an option to not have your cattle have water. Um, like that's just not a thing. So, and then it was frozen solid. So I'm out there with a hammer and a chisel in negative five degree weather, you know, chipping this out. And then I have to rewire the whole thing. And they like, this is like four hours of my, of my morning on a day that I also had to then go to work afterwards, you know, digging this out, thawing this out, getting it running, mm -hmm. getting it, getting the water again. You know, and that's the kind of thing. I mean, it just comes up. That's part of it. You know, uh, the other one is maybe even funnier was there's a hydrant. And this was in springtime. This wasn't um, quite as the weather wasn't quite as bad. It was springtime, but it was nasty spring. It was like, you know, one of those 40 degree days and there was water coming up from beneath the hydrant. I was like, oh no. So the hydrant must've broke down. Like there was a break down deep below this hydrant in the ground. And so I got, so I dug a four foot hole in the ground to go look at this hydrant. And it turns out that the cattle had rubbed against the hydrant they rub against freaking everything man um and they rubbed against this hydrant and turned the hydrant like three quarters of a turn mm. which made it um which made the open it up so the water could kind of come out of the pipe at the bottom like it was still mm -hmm. attached but it was just turned and the water was bubbling out everywhere but it turned out all i had to do was turn it three quarters of a turn the other way and i wouldn't have had to dug the hole at all it was just like yep yeah, tighten it up it's done. So I just literally would have had to grab the hydrant head, turned it, and job was over. And instead, I dug a four-foot hole in 40-degree weather and got soaking wet to try to solve a problem that didn't really need solved. So, you know, that's that's also the kind of thing that happens. Um, so, yeah, I guess... So it's, a, it's important not to get idealistic about this and, and, and think, oh, well, this is the way to go. You can be in touch with nature and everything's sustainable and it's this yeah. sort of idyllic lifestyle, but that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stress involved and, and that this, even though this, uh, there is, there's some sort of um, balance that an abundance that you're experiencing that you still, you're still kind of uh, nurturing and putting, you have to, you have to figure out how to, how to use your resources to best, um, you know, cultivate the the things that you're trying to cultivate. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it is that sort of um, like, like I've used the word idyllic or pastoral, um, like you have those moments, um, but you know, those are balanced with, you know, the kind of the slog sometimes and, and the stress sometimes, and the, you know, animals need things all the time when you have animals in your care, it's like, um, yeah, they are in need. Uh, you can't, have you can't they can't not have water right they can't not have food that's just not an option so you're really um like and, and this is an example that, that you and i have actually talked about that's come up because i've had to cancel travel plans mm -hmm. um and it's really reshaped my relationship with travel a lot because you know i used to like like you know many people um really enjoy traveling and at this point it's like hmm, leaving the farm is, <laughs> is is stressful because it's like yeah. you have to get everything ready to leave and then you're leaving and then you're hoping everything's good while you're gone you yeah i mean you have to have somebody who can come check on it and then it, it, it's just like hmm you know maybe just no maybe i'll just be here um which is on the one hand it's great because i love to be here um so i've had to kind of really really look at my relationship with travel and, and 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 in some ways that's been kind of a cool thing too uh because i i struggled with it for a little bit and then i just have kind of accepted it and like no you know what it's just not a thing 
And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to look at my relationship with that, with mm-hmm. travel, right? Which is sort of like a cornerstone, uh, I feel like, of a lot of people in, you know, America, at least, and, you know, you know, especially of a certain, you know, kind of, you know, education, social class, whatnot, like travel is sort of like a, just a cornerstone thing that people do, like it's built in, like, yeah, travel is a good thing. And again, I'm not trying to say it's not good or bad. I'm trying to say that I was like, well, I'm just going to really look at my relationship with that. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's been kind of a neat experience to do that, to just be like, you know, that's not a thing I do. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I never will. Um, in fact, I have some plans to, to do a little bit um, this fall, um, but much less and the kind of like, well, what's that like? What's that need in me to do that? Um, what if I don't indulge that need? You know, what if I just stay here? Like what, like it's been a pretty cool chance for self-examination around, around that. Um, just a super, a super different, a super different lifestyle. You know, when, when, when you're on the farm, you're on the farm. <laughs> um, so that's been a, a way that's been sort of good self-exploration, good, um, uh, you know, really interesting psychological experience. Um, I think for the kids, I'm mean, growing up on the farm is good for children. I'll just say that like, it's a good way for kids to grow up. It's been awesome to, to like, they have a great, they have a great childhood. Um, you know, they, they spend a lot of time outside. Mm-hmm. They kind of are curious and able to engage uh, that curiosity a lot. Um, and they have the room and we homeschool them too. So they're, they're here a lot. Um, we make sure to go out of their way that they can be involved in activities so that they, you know, have a lot of good social connections and they do. Um, but, uh, they had really good, um, oh, hold on, I'm getting a, sorry. Um, you want to pause? Yeah. Sorry about that. I got a message that um from Quinn which was just like wondering if you need anything I'll edit this out um but yeah they they've had a a really wonderful chance so I think for kids it's a great it's just a great way to grow up they spend a lot of time outside Miles is really into the garden right now my 12 year old he's on his own because I've kind of I wouldn't say lost interest well I could say lost interest in the garden like I'm just too busy to do it um so we kind of plant a garden every year and then it kind of goes but miles has taken it on like he's into it like he he does the harvest and he's um you know he's just really kind of absorbed that and all on his own you know like i haven't i never really asked him to i've encouraged him you know he's shown an interest and so i'll encourage it but i'm not you know and, and i think quinn's developed his they, they develop a lot of self-interest you know in quinn's really into forestry and so he um uh, and, and trees he's always loved trees so he'll go out in the woods now uh, we have these various and and he digs up little trees and he's gotten into bonsai so he's turning these native trees into bonsais he's learning how to do that like he's got you know a few different species that he's um playing with that he goes and digs up a sapling and um i never said a single word about that you know like that's just mm-hmm. him um thinking of that you know spoon carving is another thing he's into so they kind of um, just are able to sort of follow their curiosity about it. So um, I think in some ways the benefits for them are much greater than the benefits for me because I'm also the one that's sort of burdened with a lot, uh, and Emily, you know, burdened <laughs> with a lot of the stress of it. Right. And, right. and that's not to say they're not helpful. They they pulled their share, but um, that sort of like getting over the hump of of sort of transitioning from, you know, just sort of a living in Denver, doing that life to this life, uh, um, that's been a hell of an adjustment, but they were so little, they don't at this point really remember anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious too about how, if you could say a bit, if your experience is, you know, more in depth with farming and, and this lifestyle, how that might have um, impacted how you how you do psychotherapy. You know, as a therapist, uh, as a therapist who is open to the use of psychedelics, like, do you find yourself drawing on metaphors related to farming? Does, does do the values associated with the farming community find their way into the therapy room? 
Um, are, or is there maybe not a relationship at all and they're very compartmentalized for you? Um, no, I wouldn't say they're compartmentalized. Um, the metaphor is one of my favorite things. You know, it's when farming and being out like this, it connects you with a lot of, I hope I can think of some of them, but a lot of the cultural metaphors that are just sort of part of our inherited vernacular of how we talk. Mm -hmm. um, we have all these metaphors. The roots are deeply in farming, but they don't mean as much anymore, I don't think, because um, because we're not connected with the source of the metaphor. Um, for instance, we had a cow um, a few years ago. This was probably three years ago. This was in 2020. This was during the pandemic. Um, and she lost a calf and she had the calf. It was a healthy calf, but then the best we can figure the calf got underfoot and got stepped on or something. And it was real sad, um, but we lost her. And so, the, but then you had the mama who didn't have a calf anymore and was in full bloom with milk production. I mean, the calf was only a few days old, so she was making as much milk as she could possibly make. So she was super engorged and we have Dexter cattle and Dexter cattle are, are bred for dual purpose. Like they are meat and milk animals. So I was like, well, she's a real tame animal let's let's milk her and so i milked her and we don't do this you know regularly that's not like a um we don't milk our animals um as a practice but with her we did and i did for like four or five months i milked her um and you know which was awesome it was just an awesome experience actually i i, I would do if i had more time i would do that more because it's really neat and the milk is really good and they produce a lot the dexters are for like a, for like a family scale dexters are perfect you know if you milk like a full milk cow like um a jersey or a guernsey or something like that they produce like seven gallons a day something crazy more than you could ever use but you can get a gallon or two from a dexter which is awesome mm. and um you get up every morning you go out and wash up and and i, I just did it by hand we didn't have a machine or anything like that because it's I mean, this was just something we were doing. It's a really, really meditative activity. Actually, it's awesome. You'd sit there and um, it's really relaxing. Um, but, you know, you're, you're milking and, and so she is a pretty tame animal, but, you know, she's an animal and um, I didn't have her, you know, pinned up tight. You know, I just had her haltered up and every once in a while, something will, she'll, there'll be a fly or something like that and she'll kick the bucket over. And if you don't, usually I'd have a bucket and then I'd have a jug and the jug had a lid. And so if, you know, the, the, the bucket would get half full or whatever, and I'll dump the bucket, you know, into the jug and then come back to milking into the bucket. But sometimes you don't do that very quickly. And like, say you've got a half a bucket of milk, three quarters of a bucket of milk. You've got like, you know, three quarters of a gallon of milk that you've spent the last 10, 15 minutes kind of getting. And she kicks it over, sticks her foot in it, you know, and she like, and then it's got like, it's dumped over or there's manure in it or something it's ruined and it's like oh well this is where the phrase don't cry over spilled milk comes right mm. it's not like the baby spilling milk because the baby doesn't care who's crying about that it's like annoying but if you're getting up at five in the morning and you're and you're going to milk and this is your milk for the day mm -hmm. that sucks mm. <laughs> right right you know and I'm like it just brings more power to the metaphor where you're like oh wow like you, you connect more with and i think a lot of our metaphors are like that they're rooted in these agricultural experiences that people have lost contact with so we hold over the metaphor but it doesn't have quite the same oomph that it might if we were connected with the source of it um yeah so that's a maybe a bit of a tangent but it does i mean being on a farm is an incredible source of metaphor and as you know contextual behavioral therapists and practice act you know we're always loving metaphors and so like it's just the richest source of metaphor there is like you know out in the ecosystem out on the farm doing like it's just all the yeah. time and most of the people around here can connect somewhat i mean a lot of my clients aren't on the farm aren't outside but i, I think it's it is something that even if you don't live uh that close to the land i still think it's it's in there the echoes of it are in there enough where it's relatable um and 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 so no i think in general i'm not a very compartmentalized person mm -hmm. you know in general um i i try not to be so it definitely comes in into you know into the therapy room with me and it is like this um 
you know, it's, 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 um, you know, in all cases, it's, there's this openness and this listening that has to happen. You know, if you're working, if I'm doing therapy, like the, the you know, I, the idea that you're open, you're listening very carefully and attentive, um, which is the kind of attention I have to pay out here. I don't always succeed in either case. You know, sometimes you have those days in therapy where you're tired or distracted or whatever. Um, and some days on the farm, like I just have to plow through my chores and I barely even notice what the, you know, what's around me. But if I'm show up and I'm doing it well, and I'm kind of, um, doing my best, you know, I am, I am attentive the whole time. I'm noticing things. Um, I am there for the people I'm working with. I'm attentive when I'm doing my, like there's this quality of attention that is cultivated by, by doing this. If you will show up for it, like if okay. you, if you show up in that way, um, you can always just put your head down and plow through it. Um, uh, which I, again, I do sometimes, it's not like my attention is perfect. And the, the aforementioned, um, stresses and strains get in the way like they do everything else in life but there's a way of you know living of kind of being you know open and present that i think is at its best you know common to you know both of those i guess enterprises you could say yeah i thought you were going to say that was the origin of the kick the bucket metaphor but you went with don't cry (laughs) or spill milk Um, with a different direction kick the bucket i don't know the origin of kick the bucket (laughs) i'll have to look that up I mean, it seems like another benefit of, uh, you know, having to take care of living beings like, you know, um, cattle and bees is that you are more in touch with the cycles of life and death. And they they say that, you know, as we've sort of become more distant from where food is grown and where the, you know, the animals that we eat come from, as as there's more of a separation, um, we lose the benefit of, of, having to encounter and having to have experiences with with death and birth right i I know you posted about the birth of some 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 livestock and that was you know really uh a beautiful seemed like a a beautiful experience and then to lose cattle i'm sure is also devastating and uh to be you know to be in in more close contact with that i could see as having uh, you know a, 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 a sort of benefit uh on your you know, sort of ability to stay attuned to that reality of, of life. Yes. A hundred percent. And that's actually probably the biggest, that's probably the biggest one uh, of all, you know, being connected to, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff kind of like we alluded to can be a little um, maybe idealistic, like, Oh, you're going to just be connected with nature. Yes. And, and I think the birth and death is the best example because, you know, you are like, especially with you, with your farming with animals, um, you are connected with both of those things. And, you know, if you have, you have chickens, um, well, if you have chickens in our case, you know, I think most people in this case who have chickens, you have predators, it's raccoons for us, you know, and that puts you at odds mm. with raccoons. Like you are sort of enemies. Raccoons don't have predators. And they are always trying to kill my chickens. So I, I'm often, you know, put you defensive. You're um, putting up uh, wire everywhere, you know, hardware cloth on everything so they can't get into the coop. Um, but sometimes you have to be offensive if you have, you know, raccoons that are just flooding in. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to start killing some raccoons. But it's, it's, it is life and death. And, um, and there is an element, you know, of struggle there. And you do maintain a very close contact with that in a way that you don't at all when it's just abstract you go to the supermarket and get steak and it's like no idea what it went into that steak mm-hmm. and um but that steak was a living creature um and in my case you know the steak that you would get from me is a living creature who was loved um and that is a hell of a complex experience um you know especially like like emily and i were vegetarians for over a decade and transitioned for a number of reasons to you know eating meat and doing this because we were convinced that this is uh, a good and healthy thing for the land you can't uh, maintain that you cannot have an intact ecosystem without large animals and you literally can't have any sort of grassland without grazing animals 
that, that that has any integrity at all like it's not possible um you know ruminant animals do a um assist a, a function in a in a grassland ecosystem that cannot be replicated um by anything else you know they they turn that grass into you know they eat it they, they turn it into food um and then they pass it out and as fertilizer and that cycle is it, it's irreplicable like you, you can't mow it like there's nothing you can do um that's healthier or better for the function of a grassland than a ruminant animal um and so then that ruminant animal um produces either milk or meat you know for human consumption um and that's that that's very complex uh experience to care for creatures and spend a lot of time and energy and you know to, to come back to it because it's true is to use the word love like a love of the herd that i work with and the animals um and there is a great deal of care involved you know, all kinds of time keeping them alive keeping their needs met you know and then you do send them you know the steers off you know to slaughter to become food that then will nourish your family and other people's families um with a really high quality really high quality food um you know grass-fed beef very uh very nutrient-dense high quality food um and <laughs> that's yeah emotionally uh complex mm -hmm. um because you have to wrestle with just this very question of life and death and of our place man's place in our world right mm -hmm. like we're apex predators that's who we are you know like that's how we're evolved to do that now i'm not saying and i'm not i don't i'm not trying to make uh an anti-vegetarian take like it like we can live on lots of things we're omnivores um and i wasn't for many people it is the best choice so i don't want to get caught up in being like mm, this is how it's supposed to be and you're not supposed to be vegetarian i don't I'm not trying to do that, um, but I am saying we're extremely well adapted to eat meat, and many ecosystems are extremely good, like grasslands, for instance, extremely good at producing meat, so it's good for the land, and it's good for our bodies, um, and it's sort of a, a necessary thing. I mean, even if you are wanting to abstain from eating animals for ethical reasons, you're definitely still consuming life you're definitely still you know responsible for um the deaths of small mammals that get caught up in harvesting equipment and, and all of this thing. like there's no there's no free lunches we would say and so when when you're eating and consuming an animal that you raise yourself you're like just in direct contact with that you're in contact with living and dying and you're in contact with well i have to reckon with my place in the web of life without delusion without pretension without any kind of pretending that uh we can i can hide from that you know like if i just go buy my food somewhere else and don't think too much about where it came from i can sort of pretend that i'm uh that i've transcended that that i'm not a part of that but it makes you remember like you're a creature you know you're a creature uh, that is living that is also fighting for survival you know whether it feels like it or not um you know you are food is primary to existing you know like you mm -hmm. eat we all eat um and and so the idea that you know we just outsource our food production completely to these people that we never think about uh and to the landscape that we never think about whether it's harmful good for landscape and you know there's a lot of people who will tell you that you know beef farming animal ag is bad for the environment and we're not going to get too much into that it depends how it's done um i would strenuously argue against that point um but that's not what we're going to do today <laughs> um but that's i think that is the main way it puts you in contact it's not necessarily like it's not it, it is those days where you look out and you see all the sparrows and it's all and everything's beautiful and seems like it's in the right place that happens but it's really this life and death consuming life to stay alive um that sort of struggle for that the work for that and 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 reckoning with your place in it as a human who knows what we're doing who is conscious of 
uh, what we do when we take a life, who's conscious of what that means, yet we do that to continue to live. Um, I think that's very powerful. Yeah, uh, that's been that's been a big thing for our family. You know, my my older son's very he shows cattle and he loves them like we all do. And uh, I think beef is still hard for him for this reason. He he eats it, but I think he always is a little bit like, oh, mm. this is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that cycle of life and being just right there with it is really valuable. It's really valuable. It's it's it it takes some of the romanticism out and replaces it with a a a, a more um i think grittier understanding of what it is to be a living creature which you know i think kind of tying this in probably at the end uh, to the actual subject of our podcast um you know there there's a very I mean, I think that that's one of the things about the psychedelic experience that I appreciate as well is it's not all roses either. You know, it isn't. And I, I think that that's really important. That's one of my, you know, at this point in my life, I think that's just one of the most important things that I try to be mindful of a lot, like appreciate the beautiful things when they happen and, but recognize that, you know, there's light and dark um, and the psychedelic experience is light and dark too. If you try to make it so that I'm only going to have the experiences I want, I'm only going to have the good experiences. It's all sunshine. It's all like the, you know, the, the hippie tie dyed great music part, you know, that it's <laughs> the, the other side will catch up to you sometime. It's mm-hmm. both, you know, life is, life is really um, complex and, and mixed. Um and coming to terms with what that is is of life and death and um is is essential um mm. and i think farming psychedelics i mean i think ter- therapy is coming to terms with that too is reconciling that you take the good with the bad you appreciate the beauty and you but you accept the cost of you know being a person Yeah, that there's more of maybe a of um, an you know an ex an openness to the the full a more full or uh, spectrum of experiences. Um, whereas I think in our you know in our our typical lives, it's very easy to get into a more narrow range of you know um, going through our lives and with technology and being busy. We sort of close, we, you know, we don't have to deal with a lot of horrific stuff like directly. Of course, the news is out there and it catches up with us, but um, that's when you shouldn't pay attention to. <laughs> right. Cause it's not, it's not, it's like, it's, it's not this like, um, it, it's, it's sort of delivered in a way that's not really meant for our nervous systems to process in terms of the amount of information. Right. And it sort of becomes fake and it actually makes us more numbed out, I think, to the, to, to what's really, you know, death and, and, and tragedy yes. and suffering. Right. Yes. Oh man. That's a, such, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. It's, and it's like that with, I, I'll tie this to, to what we're talking, I was talking about a little bit with the, the climate change and stuff, because I feel like that's a great example of something that's become this real disembodied boogeyman. I, I, I it's probably not the right word. Cause I mean, I'm not downplaying climate change the slightest. I, think it's a big a huge deal and, and it, it's informed a whole lot of decisions i've made and continue to make in my life so there's nothing about this that's downplaying it but i think that the way the m- most people who are disconnected from natural systems encounter climate change is terrifying and disempowering right mm-hmm. like you get this disembodied knowledge here's this thing that's coming to kill you but you don't have any real direct connection with your ecosphere it's terrifying and paralyzing and i think it's essential to connect with this planet that you're on in a really direct way and i think that that feels empowering to touch reach down and touch life touch living things and to see birth and death and to understand ourselves as a part of it you know rather than like 
very fragile, you know, living in a, in, in a, in a way in which you're not connected with any systems. You don't know where your food comes from. You're completely vulnerable feeling. Um, and then, and then this, 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 this news beaming in at you, that's just terrifying and awful. Uh, I think it creates psychologically an experience that's extremely difficult to deal with and extremely difficult to have agency within like, Hey, there's something I can do when, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you know, in the case of being out here, it feels like I, I definitely feel like, you know what, I I accept, I don't <laughs> disagree at all with any of the, the climate science. I mean, I shouldn't say with any of it. I don't think it's all whatever. <laughs> but I also am like, well, I'm doing what I can. And mm-hmm. I go out every day and I do what I can. And I'm creating both things that I think are good to help bring carbon out of the out of the atmosphere and do what I can on that part. But I'm also making things more resilient so if you know shit does continue to go the way it seems like it's going like it's like well okay there's an intact ecosystem is going to fare better you know and and there may you know who knows maybe it'll be more than you can do but it feels like there's something i'm building that's also a little more resilient it's a little more prepared Uh, i don't think in terms of prepping at all that's not how my mind works but i do think in terms of resilience and adaptability um so it feels like there's something i'm doing for my family with my family um and it's it's much more empowering. It's a psychologically, I think, more humanly. Uh, we're we're more adapted to this sort of psychological experience, the one where you're just kind of getting this news beamed at you without as much of a sense of being able to do anything. Um, and so that's why I I I'm like tuning out the news these days. I don't pay attention to the news at all. That's been something in the last three or four years I've I've done. Don't I don't pay attention to it. Uh, very, very little. Um, I have other things that need my attention. And um, you know, because it just doesn't help. <laughs> That's the bottom line is it just doesn't help. There's nothing that knowing that information right. um, it, it doesn't inform my behavior in any way that's useful or helpful or healthy. Yeah. And it's quite unhelpful for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it is. I, I encourage all people to do news fasts. And then once you see how awesome it is to not pay attention to the news, just like make that news fast mm-hmm. semi-permanent because it, it, it's not going to help you. Um, you know, if you feel like you need to stay informed, um, okay, fine. Read like a newspaper article, a summary once a week or something. Don't watch cable news ever. It's bad for you. Um, it makes you dumber. Literally makes you dumber. Um, partisanship all this like it just don't do it um i'm not saying don't vote but just watch how it uh, influences your brain it's not good um but that again that that's a bit of a tangent um stay directly connected to the um it's funny going back to our kids my kids um it's like they're really in touch with yeah they were here i mean they've helped we've lost animals they've helped bury cows they you know, see how beef comes to them. Um, they've been there for most of our calves' births, and that's that's joy, right? Like this. So that's the other experience. Like birthing season is stressful because you're out there at all hours and night checking on this and that. Like it's a lot of work, but it's so much joy to bring a little baby animal into the world to see them wobble on their little legs for the for the first time. And um, so these cycles of birth and death and things like that. Our kids are super connected with that. Super connected with these. Like this is what life is. Right. But we keep right. we keep them really disconnected, actually, from a lot of things that a lot of what I consider to be mental pollution. Um, it's like well, you don't need to. We don't do a lot of those things that are very, um, you know, that I think a lot of their peers probably are spend much more time in, and we so we're kind of like, kind of, I don't know. We're not really isolationists. We certainly don't want to shelter them from the world, but there are a lot of things we're kind of like less so with Quinn now he's 15 so not much with him but we've throughout their childhood like we don't need to absorb ourselves in that but really you're gonna they're they're much more in touch with a lot of these aspects of life and I think that's important I wish everybody could be more deeply connected with life and death and in in that way yeah well thanks for sharing about your uh, about this passion, about this part of your life. And, uh, you know, if our listeners are curious to hear more, let us know. We can certainly 
you know, talk more about this in future episodes. But yeah, really, thanks for sharing. It was great to hear you, um, you know, talk about this this part of your life that I know is really important. And so, um, yeah, it was really fascinating to hear. And I could I could totally see why this is such a something that you care so much about. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for sort of uh, indulging me as we as uh, as you can tell, it's something I, I, I love to talk about and, and can really get going. And, and I'll, I'll say what well, we can put this up too. like if you're interested, you know, Zeely Cattle Co. Zeely Cattle Co. is Instagram. Uh, Emily does Instagram for uh, the farm and you can go and you can see she puts pictures of all the animals and stuff like that. It's really cute. She does a nice job. Um, and um, yeah, that's probably the best way. We're kind of, we have a website, um, Zeely Cattle uh, Company dot com. And, um, and that's sort of a work in progress, but there, there's some there too. The Instagram's a good way to kind of keep up to date. And the website, like I said, is a work in progress. We're gonna, we are gonna probably this fall open up a farm store that's gonna be mostly probably various forms of merch at this point, because we're still direct to consumer. Most of our haves and and quarters are sold out. We don't have enough inventory to really sell via the store, but we'll we'll have, you know, um, you'll be able to get leather goods that are from our animals. Like we'll be selling leather goods that we had at, you know, animals, uh, so, so and, you know, shirts, things like that. Um, homemade things, my kids are both crafty. So we'll open that farm store for this fall, maybe in time for Christmas. <laughs> Great, well, thanks again. And we hope to see you all next time.